like to begin with a prayer which is used at King's College Chapel each year on the 13th of November. That's the anniversary of Simeon's death. Perhaps we'll switch to all the sheets. Let's pray. Almighty and ever-living God, who by thy holy servant Charles Simeon didst mould the lives of many, that they might go forth and teach others also, mercifully grant that as through evil report and good report he ceased not to preach thy saving word, so we may never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. If you know your ASB service book, you'll know that uh, um, Simeon is now one of the lesser saints of the Church of England. On the 13th of November, we have the entry, Charles Simeon, pastor, preacher, 1836. And therefore he's commemorated in that statement. But who was he and what were his achievements? John has indicated already something about him. But what do we know about him? Today his name, of course, is associated with the um, Simeon trustees, and they're the patrons of about 130 or so churches. We might associate him with Holy Trinity Cambridge. Uh, we might know that he has something to do with um, the Church Missionary Society, and also what we call today the Church's Ministry Among the Jews, but little else. So we know that he is some person of some significance, but perhaps not much more about him. Bill Hybels, who's the very dynamic pastor of the Willow Creek Community Church, refers to R.C. Sproul as being able to bring alive dead Germans, because he lectures and can bring these characters alive. And I hope really tonight that that's what I can do for you, to bring alive um, something about Charles Simeon. I regard him as the most outstanding um, evangelical Anglican minister um, of the early 19th century. I suppose if we're talking about comparisons, if you think about the significance today of John Stott, through his writing, through a number of the organizations that he's been responsible for setting up, and things he's been concerned with over the last, what, 40, 50 years, in some sense, Simeon is of same, a similar sort of magnitude as John Stott. And therefore, if we want to think about people with whom you can identify, think about him as an early character, perhaps something like John Stott. My interest in Simeon goes back about um, 20 or 25 years, and most of my research over the years has been involved particularly in him and in those who followed him. His most significant um, follower was Francis Close, who was the incumbent in Cheltenham, and then he became Dean of Carlisle. And one of um, Simeon's um, early followers was Robert Wozni. He was responsible for the conversion of the Master of St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, such things did happen then. And Wozni's fine monument um, is still, of course, in St. Thomas's today. And there's a sheet, a white sheet, I think, gives you just a little um, background on Wozni. A very fascinating character, a very important character in bringing um, evangelicalism up to the northeast. On the other side of that sheet... I've got um, some headings, and really those are the headings I want to try and speak through tonight. Um, I might have to rush towards the end, because there's a, a vast amount there um, on Simeon. First of all, the introduction, really just to set the scene. 
The evangelical revival in the 18th century was an international movement. It spread really from Eastern Europe across to the, the United States, or, or America as we would call it then. It began in Britain with the conversion of Howell Harris, Daniel Rowland, and George Whitfield in 1735. By the end of the 18th century, there were some, somewhere between 300 and 500 clergy of the established church who were evangelicals. It's interesting if you think about the end of the 19th century, 100 years on beyond that, probably a third of the clergy were evangelical by that time. Most of the 18th century evangelicals were moderate Calvinists in outlook. In the 18th century, they were isolated, they were geographically cut off, from their fellow evangelicals and theologically isolated from other clergy. And so they were often very much by themselves. Certainly Wozni, when he was up here, was very much cut off from other people around him. They were variously, variously described as serious clergy or church Methodists. The Bishop of Lincoln referred to the great bulk of the more serious clergy as great rascals. One unnamed bishop said church Methodism is the disease of my diocese. I'm sure some bishops today would say similar things. It shall be the business of my life to get rid of it. William Wilberforce said this, opposition to the evangelical clergy is carried on in so very venomous a way and with so much imprudence and so little regard to truth that the mischief it does is very great indeed. It accuses them in the plainest terms and sometimes by name as being disaffected both to church and state. They were, of course, often regarded as Jacobins, people who were actually trying to subvert the whole um, church life and the, the life of the people in the nation. The background, of course, at that time was the Enlightenment. There was a suspicion of religious enthusiasm and fear of revolution, such as had happened and was indeed happening in France. Um, if you think about Simeon, of course, he was living through the time of the Napoleonic Wars and then the terrible... Um, social upheaval which took place after the wars. So that was really the period which we're talking about tonight. Therefore, because of all this aggro that was going on, there's no small wonder that few evangelicals occupied significant um, positions in the church. It wasn't until 1791 that Isaac Milner became Dean of Carlisle, and indeed 1815 until Henry Ryder became Bishop of Gloucester. And so the influence of the evangelicals in the 18th century was fairly local, fairly limited, and things didn't really get off the ground until into the early 19th century. There were significant characters, however. Um, one significant dynasty of three generations of evangelicals were the Venn family. Henry Venn of um, Huddersfield, John Venn of Little Dunham, and then of Clapham, Clapham sect and so on, and then Henry Venn, the secretary of CMS. And what we're talking about tonight are the second generation of evangelicals. Such people as John Venn, whom I mentioned, John Newton, of the only hymns, of course, Richard Cecil, Thomas Scott, Josiah Pratt, and Charles Simeon. If you look on the white sheet where the little picture is, you'll see that Simeon's CV is very modest. He was born of wealthy Reading parents, he attended Eton and King's College, Cambridge, and remained there for the rest of his life. He was a fellow of King's and vicar of Holy Trinity. But what we're talking about tonight is really the significance of his 54-year ministry in Cambridge. He was influential to perhaps 13 to 14 generations of undergraduates who became ordained 
or entered other professions at home and overseas. Something like an estimated 1,000 future clergy came under his influence, and something like 30 men went out to India, either as CMS missionaries or as chaplains to the East India Company. Um, somebody's just done some research recently on that and actually has confirmed those figures. Max Warren, um, a few years ago, suggested something like 60 men went overseas. Actually, that's um, an overestimate. So something like 30 men went overseas. In the opinion of Abner Brown, a clearly defined school of divinity developed. It began with Simeon, and which then became a clearly recognisable party in the Church of England, people were known as Sims or Simeonites, and that continued right up to at least probably the 1860s. So they were tarred with the Simeonite brush. And really he gave to evangelicalism a pattern of leadership, inspiration, and fundamentally loyalty to the Church of England. So that really is an overview and, and trying to put him in context in terms of where we are. Secondly, Simeon's conversion, his character, and appointment to Holy Trinity. Rather a lot there, I'm afraid, but um, I wanted to try and push in and try and then go ahead on some of these other issues. Simeon said that under God, I owe everything to Provost William Cook. I'm sure um, if I asked for a sort of straw vote tonight, nobody here would have heard of um, Provost William Cook. The only thing that he seems to have done is to translate Gray's elegy into Greek verse, which seems a singularly useless exercise. <laughs> I'm reminded of the Cornish clergyman, who also is unknown and to most of us, whose life work consisted of putting two kings into rhyming couplets. <laughs> and then he was dis disappointed that nobody actually ever bought his books. <laughs> so there's Mr. Mr. Cook for you. On the 20th of January, 1779, Simeon entered King's College and was informed by Provost Cook, this of course is why Provost Cook is so significant, that he must attend the compulsory termly communion service. And then Simeon noted this, Conscience told me that Satan was as fit to go there as I, and that if I must go, I must repent and turn to God, unless I chose to eat and drink of my own damnation. And I thought David last night was going to sort of preempt all that I was going to say today in terms of the introduction to his sermon. But anyway, I'll read what you read last night. After this, then Simeon fasted, he prayed, he read books, and was convicted of his sin. And he wrote this, Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus, and on the Wednesday began to have a hope of mercy. And on the Thursday that hope increased, and on the Friday and Saturday it became more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter day, 4th of April, 1779, I awoke early with these words on my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And that profound um, conversion experience, of course, was very significant and influenced the whole of his life and the whole of the lives of those men whom he influenced subsequently beyond that. Early on, though, he received um, very little help. He actually... Um, went to a party shortly after that and got drunk and was severely sort of reprimanded in his own soul about that. But he received next to nothing in terms of help from the irreverent way in which the services were conducted in the chapel. Yet the deadness of the worship, I suppose this is of encouragement to those of us from the Anglican um, background, the deadness of the worship was compensated by the excellence of the liturgy, which became to him marrow and fatness. And that gave him the great love for the Anglican formularies the 39 Articles, the Homilies, and the Book of Common Prayer. He got no help from anybody else, and therefore the liturgy actually sustained him 
during those early days. As to his character, he was a bad-tempered, irritable person. He once signed his letter, Charles, proud and irritable. He had been an ugly boy and was called Chin Simeon. And if you look at the little picture on there of him preaching, look at the great chin which sticks out. At school, he was keen on sport, and throughout his life, he had a passion for horses. At school, he also developed a rather extravagant way of dressing, which never left him. I suppose in some sense we would call him a clerical regency dandy. <laughs> I'm reminded, too, of the headmaster of Stowe School, J.F. Roxburgh, of whom it was said that his clothes were florid, elegantly cut, but of remarkable hue. And I think to some extent that describes um, Simeon exactly. And, of course, he used to walk around Cambridge with his master's gown on and... Uh, an umbrella such as Roger Mills has, um, <laughs> under his arm, and everybody knew that Chin Simeon was coming, and uh, there he was. The umbrella is still to be seen in Holy Trinity in Cambridge. <coughs> Simeon was meticulous about his money. He lived on £50 a year and gave away a third of his income to charity. And he was a very fussy person. When undergraduates came to his rooms, they had to wipe their feet before entering, entering the room. Later on in his life, he suffered from gout and was so pained that on one occasion he had to be carried. Um, he also had a carriage, of course. He was conveyed around in that. But he had to get somebody else to edit a volume of his works because he was so pained by the gout. I don't think he was actually a drinker, but we don't know much about that. Of course, drink and gout aren't always associated together, as you may know. In May 1782, Simeon was ordained to a college fellowship. And in the long summer vacation of 1782, he preached at St. Edward's Church. Henry Venn, who I've mentioned already, reported that in less than 17 Sundays, by preaching for Mr. Atkinson in a church at Cambridge, he filled it with hearers, a thing unknown there for nearly, nearly a century. He has been over to see me six times within the last three months. He has calculated for great usefulness and is full of faith and love. Henry Venn was obviously um, much... Um, uh, appreciating this uh, ministry going on in Cambridge, but the parish clerk of the church and the curate in charge, Mr. Mr. Atkinson, who was away at the time, they weren't happy with the situation. The minister, Christopher Atkinson, said, fill my church, has he? I'll undertake to empty it within a fortnight. <laughs> but then the parish clerk, he had something else to say. His return was warmly received by the parish clerk, who said, oh, sir, I'm glad you are come. Now we shall have some room. <laughs> Simeon encouraged his father to approach the Bishop of Ely to appoint him to the vacant living of Holy Trinity, Cambridge. The bishop agreed, and Simeon became the incumbent in November 1782. He was only 23, still a deacon, and not yet ordained presbyter until the following year. I think that would be most unusual today for a deacon to be um, appointed to a living like that. Just before he became the incumbent, he went to hear a popular preacher at Holy Trinity. After this, a communion service was held, and the congregation consisted of the minister, the parish clerk, and Simeon. But later in his ministry, of course, much later on, the congregation went up to at least 1,000. In the 1830s, the building was enlarged to hold 300 more people, and at his funeral service, 1,500 people were crowded into the church. So things moved on from the three at that particular communion service. Thirdly, Simeon's theological position. As I've said already, Simeon, like many of the other evangelicals, was very isolated. Initially, he found no kindred spirits at the university. Early on, he valued the ministry of the man Christopher Atkinson, whom I mentioned already at St. Edward's. 
He also valued the encouragement of the Venns and of the eccentric John Berridge. Now, he had a parish just outside Cambridge, and he was the one who preached, and when he preached, men and women fell to the ground and cried out. John Wesley, of course, went once, or several times, went to the church, and he said this, This occasioned a mixture of various sounds, some shrieking, some roaring aloud. Simeon didn't encourage that behavior, of course, later on, but he, in fact, was a very emotional preacher, and perhaps some of his emotional preaching perhaps came from John Berridge. His more sort of sedate Anglicanism really came from the Venns. Though he was isolated from contact with other evangelicals, Simeon remained within mainstream evangelicalism, but yet he developed his own distinctive stance. He says this, In the beginning of my inquiries, I said to myself, I am a fool. I suppose that's a good place for any of us to begin. (laughs) I am a fool. Of that I am quite certain. One thing I know assuredly, that in religion of myself I know nothing. I do not therefore sit down to the perusal of scripture in order to impose a sense on the inspired writers, but to receive one as they give it to me. I pretend not to teach them. I wish like a child to be taught by them. I suppose that's a good motto for most preachers, to be taught by scripture and not to impose our schema upon it. Simeon took his religion from the Bible and, as he says, he endeavours as much as possible to speak as that speaks. His own theological position is best described in his own words as a Bible Christian. Nothing to do with the Methodist sect of later on, but he was a Bible Christian. He also said a moderate Calvinist or a semi-Calvinist. But if I speak and use the word Calvinism, or refer to Calvinism, I suppose that can give um, the wrong impression. Um, Different people here would respond in different ways to that. Simeon was certainly no Calvinist, neither was he an Arminian. Both Calvinists and Arminians, quotes, are right in all they affirm and wrong in all they deny. Both right in their principles and both wrong in their inferences. Simeon made it clear that scripture is, far, is a far broader system than either Calvinists or Arminianists admit. And he added in his notes, I consider this to be very important. He made it plain that he was no friend to systematizers in theology. And he says this, God has not revealed his truth in a system. The Bible has no system as such. Lay aside system and fly to the Bible. Receive its words with simple submission and without an eye to any system. Be Bible Christians, not system Christians. But then you may think, well, of course, he obviously is committed to a sort of position in the middle. He's neither one thing or the other. But he doesn't say that. He says that he is committed to both extremes. And then he propounded his famous dictum concerning the golden mean. When two opposite principles are clearly contained in the Bible... Truth does not lie in taking what is called the golden mean, but in steadily adopting both extremes, and as a pendulum oscillating, not vacillating, between the two. So I suppose you could say he was both a Calvinist and an Arminianist, which of course will please nobody in the room. (laughs) He set out his theological position in his university sermons. These were set-piece occasions, given before friend and foe alike. At times, the University Church of Great St. Mary's was nearly empty for these select preachers to come. One one person said this. One preacher is said to have addressed the vice-chancellor, the beadle, 
somebody they called Mr. Bluecoat, who was the university marshal, and the walls. <laughs> Popular preachers could fill the church. And that, of course, happened later on when Simeon was at the height of his ministry. And this is a quotation of somebody who was present. There is not a more popular man in the whole university than the venerable minister of Trinity Church. That obviously was later on because he was actually um, disliked intensely by a lot of people early on. So the venerable minister of Trinity Church. And when he preaches before the university, there is not a master of a college, nor a master of arts, nor a professor, nor an undergraduate absent who can possibly be present. In all, he published or, or um, preached 32 university sermons. These were later published in his full, uh, his 21-volume his work, Horae Homiletica. I'll be talking about that in a few moments. Throughout his, uh, most of his ministry, Simeon experienced opposition, whether from bishops or those critical of evangelicals, sometimes written, sometimes verbal. Simeon's great friend Daniel Wilson, who became Bishop of Calcutta, said that two-thirds, perhaps, of his ministry were passed under very considerable discouragement. That, in effect, means about 30 years. Though dragged into controversy, he was not himself keen to spend a lot of time in running after errors. I've been glad that others have the ability to occupy that line of investigation, and I've been happy to avail myself of their labours. Simeon died in... 1836, and if you know your history from about that period, 1833 was the time of the beginning of the Tractarian movement. But Simeon was not drawn into the Tractarian controversy. He was too old, um, and he didn't really have the gift to actually want, at that stage, to get involved in that. Um, it was left to his followers, people of another generation, who had to take up the torch and follow that one. I came across this lovely reference here, to uh, those coming from, as I do, Warwickshire at the moment, George Eliot, who was very critical of um, evangelicals, just indicates something of the impact of evangelicals um, in, probably a little bit later than Simeon, but I think the point is being made here in scenes from of clerical life. Evangelicalism was no longer a nuisance, existing merely in by-corners, which any well-clad person could avoid. It was invading the very drawing rooms, mingling itself with the comfortable fumes of port wine and brandy, threatening to deaden with its murky breath all the splendour of the ostrich feathers and to stifle the village um, locally, not pretending to be better than its neighbours, with a cloud of cant and lugubrious hypocrisy. The alarm reached its climax when it was reported that Mr Tyron was endeavouring to obtain the authority from Mr Prendergast, the non-resident rector, to establish a Sunday school evening lecture in the parish church on the ground that old Mr Crewe did not preach the gospel. That is a clear indication of the impact of evangelicalism, even in rural Warwickshire in the 1830s, 1840s. But it might be good perhaps to stop at that point, either to wake you up or to say, uh, it's all right, we've got some coffee coming, the red light hasn't come on yet, has it? No, so I can... No? <laughs> Not visible, right? That's it. Are there any questions, perhaps, at that point, before we get on to the next section? Because I wanted to try and give some of the background so that people were not too um, lost by what I was trying to say. Or stretch your legs or something. Were you protesting, David, or were you just stretching your legs? Oh, stretch your legs, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> or shall we go on?
Okay, let's go on. And again, on the, uh, the sheet, in terms of the headings, I'd now like to look at um, five different areas which um, relate to Simeon and how we understand him. These, in fact, might be areas for um, discussion and, and questions because I think these are significant areas. First of all, Simeon as a churchman. In the opinion of Abner Brown, I've quoted him already, Abner Brown was one of the um, undergraduate followers of Simeon. He published a volume in the 1860s, so he was looking back upon Simeon and his significance. In the opinion of Abner Brown, Simeon not only grasped the simplicity of evangelical truth, but also sound principles and sound churchmanship. He was a loyal churchman, staunch and affectionate to the Church of England. It's interesting also to appreciate that his detractors said this of him. Simeon was more of a churchman than a gospel man. So think back to what I was saying just now about his views on the, on the Bible and on preaching the word, um, on conversion and all the rest of it. He was actually regarded by those who opposed him as not being a gospel man, but being a churchman. Simeon's own devotional life and public ministry, of course, were grounded on the Bible, but also on the Book of Common Prayer, which he believed to be a composition of unrivaled excellence. I suppose some of this, what I'm going to say now, would go down well with the Prayer Book Society, but um, I won't uh, get onto that one. He says this, The liturgy was superior to all modern compositions and nearer to inspiration than any other book that was ever composed. And Simeon said this about the formularies. The articles, the homilies, and the liturgy are the standard of divine truth. He very much believed that the ministers of the established church had an advantage over all other ministers. And the advantage was that they had both the scriptures and also other authorities which would confirm the truth of the Bible. He said this, It is true, we are not to put any human compositions on a level with the inspired volume, the scriptures alone are the proper standard of the truth, but the articles, the homilies, and the liturgy of the Church of England are an authorised exposition of the sense in which all her members profess to understand the scriptures. In other words, they're a commentary on the scriptures. And and as you know, the old uh, Book of Common Prayer contains something like, what is it, two-thirds of scripture in its... um, in the services there. Simeon said this, a congregation uniting fervently in the prayers of our liturgy would afford as complete a picture of heaven as ever yet was yet beheld on earth. The extemporaneous effusions, almost like that, the extemporaneous effusions that are used in other places of worship bear no comparison with the formularies of our church. So if you're not from an Anglican background, I apologise about that, but I'm talking tonight about Simeon, so if you wish to throw things... Um, well, John's here, so you can throw <laughs> Simeon provided a perfect example for those intending to enter the Anglican ministry. And this is how he regarded himself, as a nursing mother who found no pleasure but in administering the unadulterated word of God to my babes. I think that's a lovely expression, a nursing mother was administering the the milk of the word to his babes. Charles Smith, um, church historian of an earlier generation from the 1940s, 1950s, said this, It was Simeon who more than any other single individual taught the younger evangelicals to love the Church of England and enabled them to feel that they belonged within her body. And without the steadying influence of Simeon at Cambridge, 
there would have been far more secessions than in fact occurred. In other words, his place was significant in terms of ensuring that those who were going into the ministry remained in the Anglican um, setup rather than going outside and becoming nonconformists. Smith also makes this point. It would be no exaggeration to suggest that Simeon should be put alongside Bishop Samuel Wilberforce as one of the founding fathers or remodelers of the Church of England in the 19th century. As you probably know really from about the 18, late 1820s into the 1830s, the Church of England was being profoundly remodelled, um, a lot of it actually by the state, and that's why, of course, the Tractarians responded to the um, work of Parliament trying to reduce the number of um, um, Anglican bishoprics in um, Ireland. And therefore they felt that the, the, the state was actually doing things to the church and therefore this was wrong. But yet we have people like Wilberforce, slightly later really, but also Simeon who was actually trying to reform the church as it existed at that time. So first then, Simeon as churchman. Secondly, Simeon as a pastor. And this hopefully may speak to some of you tonight in, in, in pastoral situations. Simeon existed um, and exercised um, a, a parochial ministry in Cambridge, not just to undergraduates. And I think sometimes we just think of him preaching to a horde of students, not just to them, but also to his poor parishioners. He referred to his parishioners as his poor folks. Simeon's student ministry was conducted, of course, through the regular preaching at um, Holy Trinity and also at Great St. Mary's, but also with smaller groups of individuals. He held a fortnightly sermon class for those who were intending to be ordained and what he called a weekly conversation or tea party for all undergraduates. If you go to Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge today, in a glass case is his teapot. So you can still see the famous teapot. The umbrella and the teapot remain. <laughs> By the late 1820s, 15 to 20 people attended the sermon classes. These were people who were specially invited. He didn't invite first-year students there, but there were second-year or usually third-year men who came to the sermon classes. And there were 60 men in the conversation parties. And there's a lovely description of uh, Simeon in his rooms at King's College where he was um, welcoming people to one of these conversation parties. He sat in a high chair at the right-hand side of the fireplace. So you can imagine the great chin sticking out, this rather um, overdressed clergyman in one corner on this high seat, and before him, as it goes on to say this, before him are the benches, arranged for the occasion, occupied by his visitors. Even the window seats are furnished with seats. At the entry of each gownsman, he would advance towards the open door with all that suavity and politeness, which you know he possessed in a remarkable degree. In any strange, if any stranger was introduced to him, at these meetings, he would forthwith produce a little pocket memorandum book and enter with due ceremony the name of his new acquaintance, taking care to inquire his college and such other matters as he deemed worthy of being registered. Mr. Simeon would take possession of the accustomed elevated seat and would commence the business of the evening. After a pause, he would encourage us to propose our doubts, addressing us in slow and soft and measured accents. Now, if any of you have any question to ask, I shall be happy to hear it and give what assistance I can. And then he had two waiters who came in and served tea. And so that was the pleasant tea party, conversation party, which took place probably for about an hour or so. It was a sort of brains trust in a way. They just fired questions at him and he gave answers. So that was the, the intention. 
He took part in at least three preaching tours to Scotland, visited the continent on behalf of what we call CMJ, and in the months before he died made a visitation to the 21 churches in his gift. He was an extensive letter writer, and he had some 7,000 letters stuffed in, in his sideboard, and these were later used by a man called Carus, who produced the great life on him. Just imagine, 7,000 letters, and then having to sort those out and try and write a biography of him. He prayed constantly for his followers. He supported them in their early ministry, and when possible, advised them about curacies or livings. The hymn we sung tonight was written by John Marriott, who wasn't um, one of Simeon's followers, but one of his, um, Francis Close, became curate to him in Warwickshire. And so that hymn tonight, I suppose, is the nearest hymn we can get to one of the sort of Simeonite-type hymns that would have been sung. Each year, interestingly, he held a meeting for clergy and their wives. I don't think that's often recorded in many of the books, but he's actually very keen to support the wives of those in the ministry. And they had this annual meeting for people, and he prayed with them, and they were together for about two days, I think. One of his curates, T.T. Thomason, went to India as a chaplain, and Simeon, who was his, um, the godfather to his son, um, acted as guardian to the boy in England. I always think it's a lovely touch. This rather um, fussy old man in Cambridge befriended this young chap in England while his father was overseas as a chaplain. So that gives a lovely sort of caring picture of him. Um, Talk just now about his babes, and I suppose in some sense this, this young boy was to him as well. Thirdly, Simeon as preacher. The best impression of Simeon preaching, of course, is contained or represented in the um, silhouettes of Cambridge uh, of Simeon preaching. Um, one of them is on the sheet there. There were nine of these made. Um, copies are in King's College and also at the Church Pastoral Aid Society at Warwick. Uh, and of course, there, as I said just now, you can see the famous chin. But they're all postures that he took when he was preaching. Eight of him preaching and one of him walking down the road um, with his umbrella. In 1833, his magnum opus was published, and really, for this you need really the green sheet. His Hori Homiletica consisted of 21 volumes, and it contained 2,536 sermons. Simon referred to it as My Hore. Then it cost 10 guineas a set. I have a set of them, and I bought them in 1976, and they cost 20 pounds in a bookshop in Worcester. And I phoned up a bookshop the other day and just said, how much are these worth? Because, you know, I'm writing my will and I want to know what I'm worth. Um, and they said, actually, they're still in print in America. And if you want to buy them, they're £200. So uh, I'll give you the address afterwards for those who want to know. You'll see from the, the green sheet on the left-hand side, I've tried to put it in columns because Hori Homiletica developed over the years. Really, Hori is made up of a number of different um, elements. First of all, some of his... Um, university sermons. As I've said, um, something like 32 sermons were preached um, as a select preacher. And when you look through Horry, the sermons which he preached to the university are much more detailed. Some of the others are just headings, but these are quite lengthy sermons, which would have taken probably um, 45 minutes to deliver. Secondly, the sermons in Horry consist of those preached on special occasions. And if you flip through Horry at the, the footnotes at the bottom, um, they give details of, of special sermons. One, for example, preached on the death of the, the Professor of Civil Law, Dr. Joseph um, Jowett. 
Thirdly, other sermons, um, most of which I suppose were preached at Holy Trinity Church. He also wrote outlines in Hori, which were specially written for the book. But fifthly, and this is most important, the famous essay on the composition of a sermon by John Claude, and that indicated a sort of particular style of, of how you actually work at and produce a sermon. As I say on the notes there, initially, of course, Simon didn't read Claude, but he only read it um, slightly as he, as he went into his ministry, and that considerably helped him in how he um, preached and how, in fact, he taught others to preach. If you can't get hold of um, Horry or you haven't got um, £200 or $400, um, there's a crib of... Claude's essay in Charles Smith, The Art of Preaching. You still find it in second-hand bookshops, but there's a useful analysis of it there. A thing I found interesting, though, as I went through this and was preparing this and thinking about it, and again, this isn't in other books, so I'm not cribbing this from somewhere else, um, how many sermons did Simeon actually preach in his 54-year ministry? If you think about it, those of you here who are preachers, you might preach, say, once, once on a Sunday or twice on a Sunday. You know, how long would it actually take to write your Hore Homiletica. After 45 years, Simeon said that he had preached 2,500 sermons. If we round it up to sort of, let's say, 50 years, this would suggest 50 sermons a year, and then it would come up with the 2,500. And then you can compare that with the sermons in Hore, um, 2,536. Doesn't seem very many, does it? We have to remember, though, that Simeon um, suffered from poor health for most of his life. Um, that's why he probably only preached 50 sermons a year. He had curates from 1796, and you know, as you know, if you have curates, they preach the sermons and they do all the horrible things. <laughs> Bury the dead and baptize and all the rest of it. Anyway, he had curates from 1796. He had a nervous breakdown in 1807 and lost the use of his voice. It's said, of course, by Keras that he was overworked. He couldn't keep the pressure going, um, and he lost the use of his voice for a year. Interesting, though, as, as we are here in uh, this place tonight, um, he was going up to Scotland, and he said that by the time he reached Berwick, that his voice had recovered sufficiently to be able to preach. So obviously it was good to come to Northumberland to uh, pick him up again. You don't have to go to the coast, you can just go to Berwick to pick you up. Simeon took 12 hours to write a sermon, and he told his followers to write out in full their sermons for the first years of ministry. He didn't expect a young minister to preach extemporary sermons until he had preached at least 300 to 400 sermons. That is, after three to four years of ministry. I was looking through my preaching book the other day. I've been in ministry for nearly 20 years, and I've only preached, I think it's 450 sermons. But think about it, those of you who are preachers here, how many sermons have you preached? during the course of your ministry? And do you actually have full notes? Or after your three to four hundred, are you actually free from them and just use headings? He suggested that the followers should deliver, um, first of all, their sermon in the church from full notes and then deliver the same sermon without notes in a workhouse or cottage um, congregation. So if you want to get, break the habit of using full notes, go to the local workhouse or go to the local cottage and preach the sermon to some rustics. <laughs> Simeon's aim, of course, in his preaching was very simple. And these are three worthy um, sentiments. To humble the sinner, to exalt the saviour, to promote holiness. To humble the sinner, 
to exalt the Saviour, to promote holiness. And then he says, if in one single instance it lose sight of any of these points, let it be condemned without mercy. I wonder if our sermons actually could reach that same sort of high um, statement in terms of how we deliver them and the intention in which we preach them. To humble the sinner, to exalt the saviour, to promote holiness. Fourthly, Simeon as a missionary strategist. Simeon was directly involved in mission at home and overseas. In his, in his parish, he developed his own visiting scheme, um, principally for the committed core of the congregation. It's interesting, again, as you reflect on the numbers of people who were attending his church. He regarded um, his committed core, this was probably early on, this may have been 1790s, uh, about the year 1800, as numbering about 120. And he divided them into six groups for pastoral oversight. And that he met with each of these two societies each week. So within the course of a month, he would actually have met with all of the, the committed core of his church. As the work increased, he only met with the leaders of the groups. Because again, that's a sound principle. And he says this, a lovely illustration of how he regarded himself in his church. I considered myself as a coachman upon the box, and them as the reins, by which I had immediate access to every individual in my church. He, of course, was not the first person to have a visiting society in that way. They were quite common in evangelical churches from about the year 1820. The thing about them, of course, is that Simeon um, was providing the model for the undergraduates in the congregation, and when they were ordained, they copied the pattern and used it elsewhere. That was, was the significance of those. Later on, he had less control over the groups, even over the leaders, and he had particular problems with one group and one leader in particular. I suppose it's like most churches. There's always one person you have the problems with, um, and he certainly had it with him. And the situation went on for a year, a lot of argy-bargy going on, and eventually he had to step in and assert his authority and dismiss him from leadership of the group because he was actually, I think, in fact, preaching um, elsewhere in churches in the um, parishes outside Cambridge. Again, under this heading of being concerned about mission, you may know in 1836 the Church Pastoral Aid Society was founded, and of those who contributed in the first year, um, Simeon, I think, contributed one of the highest amounts. He contributed £21 to the newly formed society. He was particularly concerned, of course, not just with mission at home in terms of his own parish and also, I suppose, one would say strategically with the Church Pastoral Aid Society, although, of course, it developed long after he, he died, but in terms of um, overseas mission. From the first, he was concerned and involved with the founding of the Church Missionary Society. India became his special concern in supporting chaplains, schoolmasters, an orphanage, and even setting up a bank. And he said this, and again, this might say more about him as a rather pompous, um, showy person, I used to call India my diocese. Since there's been a bishop, I modestly call it my province. <laughs> it's said that CMS developed in India mainly through the influence of Simeon. Because fundamentally, there were two um, areas in which he was concerned. The support of the chaplains to the East India Company, and then indirectly the, to the Church Missionary Society, but also to the officers in the army and many of his followers became um, officers in the Indian Army. But alongside this, his most significant missionary interest, of course, was with the evangelization of the Jews. This became his preoccupation. 
So much so that he was actually called Jew Mad. So he not only had a prominent chin, but he was also mad on Jews. Simeon, Jew Mad. It was said we must look upon Mr. Simeon as the chief friend of Israel in this country. His concern was simple, that the Jews would be pressed with vital Christianity at once. He was preeminently attached to what was called the London Society for Promoting Christianity among the Jews. That's why it's called now today um, CMJs. It's less, less of a mouthful. The London Society for Promoting Christianity among the Jews. It was simply called that because it was founded and based in London. Through Simeon's encouragement, local auxiliaries were formed in evangelical parishes. I've already said just now that the um, undergraduate followers of him developed the same pattern of ministry in their own parishes, in establishing visiting societies, the model of preaching and so on, but also in terms of support for CMJ. In just one month, in 1817, he travelled 800 miles for CMJ. He was active in establishing missions to the Jews on the continent and in Russia. He helped establish a seminary for CMJ missionaries in London and actually drew up the course of study. He preached on behalf of CMJ in Scotland, Ireland and Holland. He was very committed to this whole thing. Of course, it does link up with, and I'm not really talking about this uh, very much now, with certain views about the return of Christ. And therefore, it was he was anxious that the Jews could be reached before Christ returned. Fifth point here, which is the last one, this concerns Simeon and patronage. And as I said at the beginning of this, I suppose we know of Simeon today through the work of the Simeon trustees. Simeon's patronage extended beyond his personal support of individuals to the right of presentation to parishes. His concern was, and this is a phrase which Charles Smith used very famously, he wished to establish um, and solve the problem of continuity. Simeon solved the problem of continuity by buying up the right to present men to livings. During the 20 years 1816 to 1836, 21 livings were purchased, some in watering places like Cheltenham, Bath and Bridlington, and others in urban cities like Derby and Bradford, of course, both of those were later to become cathedrals. Though Simeon was not the first to be involved in patronage, he was an early trustee of another patronage society, um, his, um, pat, uh, his, his work of patronage really became the model for other patronage work of, of later generations of evangelicals. So that's why he is significant in the whole um, realm of patronage and its appointments. In an age when livings were bought and sold as valuable real estate, Simeon made it clear that there was a difference between himself and other men who purchase livings. They purchase income, I purchase spheres, wherein the prosperity of the established church and the kingdom of our blessed Lord may be, uh, may be advanced, but not for a season only, but if it please God, in perpetuity also. In other words, he was acquiring livings not just to see that the next person was actually an evangelical minister after somebody who had already exercised evangelical ministry, but that this thing would continue indefinitely. Livings were expensive. Cheltenham, which he purchased in 1816, um, cost £3,000. Bath probably cost £5,000. So a lot of money had to be generated in order to buy these livings. It's interesting when you compare this with the livings which were uh, obtained in this century. I've been working a lot recently on 
um, patronage in the, in the 20th century. Livings in this century were sold for amounts between 50 and 2,000 pounds. So if you think back to the early period of the 19th century, 3,000 pounds, 5,000 pounds, a lot of money. Simin had very little money himself. He had his income from his college fellowship and from £40 a year as the vicar of Holy Trinity. When the clergyman present um, complained about the church commissioners and their poor salaries, think about Simeon on his £40 a year. But where did he get his money from then? He obviously would have had income from the sale of his books. Um, He was also left some money by his brother. He left him £15,000 and gifts from well-wishers. Dr. Kilvington gave him £8,000 when Simeon had actually asked just for 500 So he sent out a begging letter, £500, and he got back £8,000. So perhaps as a good principle, if you want some money, you know, ask or think big rather than think small. And somebody else just out of the blue left him £9,000. But sometimes the gifts were quite small, and these indeed perhaps were the widow's might in some sense. £100, amounts of £50 were given, one of £40. So people were also supporting him in a rather modest way. The standard by which Simeon judged the suitability of a candidate for a vacant living was clear. He must be, as he said, a truly pious and devoted man, a man of God in deed and in truth, who with his piety combines solid judgment and a perfectly independent mind. Simeon took no notice of parishioners who pressed him to appoint a favourite curate to a vacant benefice. Now you can imagine the situation, let's say after um, 30 or 40 years, the evangelical minister dies or is appointed somewhere else. And all the young ladies in the congregation particularly favour the curate to be appointed in his place. So what do they do? They um, get up petitions. And that's exactly what happened then. Um, He received once two petitions from a congregation, one from 400 people and another from 700 people who wanted their favourite curate appointed, but he disregarded them. In his charge to his trustees, Simeon made it very clear that they must... Um, they must examine carefully and judge before God how far any person possesses the qualifications suited to the particular parish. And by that consideration alone must they be determined in their appointment of him. In other words, they mustn't be pressurized by people in the parish to appoint the people that they wanted. The right of the patron was to be independent, to appoint the person that was most suitable for that particular parish. Simeon asked this question, Why have I bought livings? Not to present a good man to each, but to fill them with the men who shall prove great and leading characters in the Church of God. And of course that's exactly what happened in terms of his followers. I talked about a thousand people who probably went into the ministry as a result of his work. And some of them did did indeed become um, the great um, leading characters in the Church of England. Perhaps in some sense it also tells us a lot about Simeon. Why have I bought livings? Not to present a good man to each, but to fill them with the, with the men who shall prove great and leading characters in the church of God. Simeon was certainly that. Uh, he, he proved to be a great and leading character in the church, but not just in Cambridge. I think so often we think of him just at Holy Trinity, exercising that ministry. But of course, as we've suggested, it spread out beyond Cambridge to the whole of England, and as far as India. Lord Macaulay actually said this, As to Simeon, if you knew what his authority and influence were, and how they extended from Cambridge to the remote corners of England, 
and as I say, we would perhaps add India, you would allow that his real sway in the church was far greater than that of any primate. His influence was far greater than any bishop at that time. I suppose his lasting significance lay in his vision and in his example. I've already referred to this in terms of him being a model clergyman to those who followed him as students. And his monument in Holy Trinity actually says it all. The ground of his own hopes, the subject of all his ministrations, and of his determination to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That indeed was the passage read tonight, and that was his sort of favourite text. And one thing which came up in his will was that the sermon which he had preached years ago on that text was to be distributed to every uh, parishioner because he regarded that truth as being fundamental, to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Alan, and thank you very much indeed for all the preparation which has gone into that. I'm sure we've learned a great deal. There's a time for... Questions and comments, uh, which is now. And please don't be shy about that. If you're too shy, I shall call upon you by name. <laughs> Just give you time for a moment. Uh, one question. Yes. Was the ministry and churches and the preachers really disorganised in them days so, uh, before Charles Simeon came on the, the scene? You had a lecture last week, was it last week? On the Wesleys, what it was. Yes. On the Wesleys. Um, it wasn't totally disorganised, but there were clearly a number of people, I refer to 300, perhaps 500 ministers in the Church of England who were evangelical and who were let's say, quotes, organised. It doesn't mean to say, though, that the others were disorganised or weren't caring. I think one is just talking about the particular evangelical tradition. I think some of the history books often give a rather bad impression of what the church was like at the time of the Wesleys and into the 19th century. But often, I've often wondered why the college was really brought up for uh, teaching purposes because yeah. the preachers in them who went wrong preaching... Yeah. Uh, uh, that they weren't really as strong as what uh, uh, Charles Wesley or sort of like uh, uh, Simeon. Yes, there wasn't any training, of course. That was the first sort of theological college was founded at St. B's in 1816. Um, other people just went into the ministry because they were um, graduates at Cambridge or Oxford, and therefore, on the strength of that, they could be ordained. They had examinations from the bishop, but they went, there was no formal qualification in terms of going to a theological college. That, that came much later but the colleges didn't get off the ground really until the 1830s. So there was no formal training. That's why he filled the, the gap. He saw the need and uh, was keen to see that people were properly trained. Of course, a lot of them went and became curates um, in very small parishes. It's interesting when you drive around today, um, it's the big parish, Simonsburn, isn't it? The biggest parish in Northumberland, as it was. There were probably a number of curates in that in, in Victorian times, um, and they would have very few people to actually minister to, but they would spend their time in actually doing some theological reading, which perhaps later would have done in a, in a college, and so they were given the opportunity to do it. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs>
Yes, no, Roger. You leave your umbrella down on it. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Um, the golf umbrella, actually. Um, I was very interested to hear what you said about, um, hear what you said about patronage on this evening. Um, and I wonder if you could clear up a point for me, which I've um, been confused by because of something I heard in the past, which was that, as I understand it, Simeon was not so much concerned to place evangelical men into the livings whose patronage he bought. Um, as much as be concerned that the people he appointed were actually suitable for that particular post. Um, and the two obviously aren't necessarily the same, because some of the patronage he bought would be for livings which were not historically evangelical. So could you, could you sort of gloss that point, please? And it, um, yes, there were, there were some that clearly were. Um, the example, I think, of is Beverly Minster, for example, that was evangelical before Simeon bought it. Often what happened was that the local people said that we want an evangelical ministry to continue here. It happened at Cheltenham as well. It was an evangelical before Close was appointed. And so in some of the places, yes, they were already evangelical. There was a lot of opposition when he bought up the livings behind the backs of people. So there was some aggro then because they didn't want an evangelical foisted upon them. So there was a bit of upset there. Um, I think possibly what you're saying might indeed relate to later on than actually in Simeon's own lifetime. Of course, if you think about how appointments are made, very few probably were actually made. He might have bought the living at a certain time. I can think of Chelton because I know that situation a lot. He, he um, bought the living in 1816 but didn't appoint until 1826. He, he acquired a lot of livings in 1835 when the Municipal Corporations Act stopped local authorities holding the right to be patrons. And so he himself didn't appoint to those livings because he died in 1836. It was left to his trustees to do that. Now, the earlier trustees were very evangelical, a very similar position to Simeon himself. But later on, the Simeon trustees uh, became more liberal in terms of their own background. A man called A.J. Tate, who was a principal of Ridley in the 1930s, he was a liberal evangelical. And so the appointments which were made much later than Simeon were often not particularly evangelical after the pattern of Simeon. But I think they've always been concerned about the parish. So depending on the particular theological position of the trustees at the time, they would appoint somebody who probably reflected their own position. I think with, with um, Simeon, um, over and against some of the other patronage societies, they've always been more sort of open and less, if you'd like to use the word conservative, than other people. But that's just the tradition of that particular patronage society. They don't talk about evangelical in their trust deed, for example. But it is assumed, because of the tradition with which Simeon was identified, that it would be. So it's a rather long-winded thing. But I think they were concerned very much with the parish, yes. But the appointment would reflect the nature of the trustees at the time. So that's why a lot of the evangel um, Simeon um, livings, say, within living memory of us in the room at the moment have not been particularly evangelical. The situation is different now because the, the trustees are more conservative. Good, Reg. Just brought up by Roger's question and referring to a comment that, that uh, Jim Packer said in his book where he likens the Church of England to Noah's Ark. You know, it's two of every kind. And... Um, uh, I mean, Jim Piper says of Simeon and uh, Bishop Ryle, something like this, that they regarded the other groups in the Church of England, which would be the 
the old high church, broad church, obviously in certain Zillions time. They regarded them as deficient rather than apostate. I'm wondering to what extent uh, Simeon may have contributed to the present attitude of, um, uh, of Anglican Evangelical on the whole, you know, to accept everybody else. I mean, what was his, what was his view, uh, Alan, on the other groups, and particularly those points where the other groups would um, actually undermine deny the gospel? You're quoting from Packer, he, of course, is quoting from Ryle, and I think in Packer's book he gets the wrong date. Ryle talked about it in the 1860s. So when he talks about the, the, um, the ark containing animals of all different sorts, which is the, the illustration you're using, I think one has to take it from that particular period when the sort of um, opposition to the sort of um, evangelical stance, if you like, was, was quite intensive. There were people who were countering that, but there were people who were very much involved with ritualism and a whole range of other things. So Ryle was speaking very much from that context. I think as to Simeon, I think the quote I gave about him not being a controversialist comes out. He wasn't really in that sort of mould. Um, two of his university sermons or series, one of them, if I can quote this example, um, emerged because of a controversy with Dr. Marsh, who was the Herbert Marsh, who was the Bishop of um, Peterborough who was the one who set what was called the trap for Calvinists. He, he objected to evangelicals, and therefore he had a series of, I think there were 60 questions, which um, people, potential ministers, had to go through and answer at their examination. And if they failed them, he wouldn't ordain them. And Simeon gave an answer to that in one of his sermons. But he wasn't, I don't think, in the business of, of addressing the issues you're talking about. They're all later issues, Certainly the Tractarian thing, I said, you know, 1833, 1836, it's much later on. Um, it was his followers who had to sort of carry the torch. He was quite a moderate person. I think this is the thing that comes across in my reading of him. He wasn't associated with any particular faction. I think people, are, it's a bit like C.S. Lewis in a way, in a rather different context. People claim him as their own, but in fact he was Anglo-Catholic who married a divorcee. But yet evangelicals latch onto him as a sort of person who, with whom they're very happy. I think in some sense Simeon is almost owned by different people who wish to sort of say things about their own particular issues, whether it be patronage or perhaps things on the Bible. But I think from an evangelical perspective, one would see him as an evangelical, but who was perhaps ahead of his time in some sense. Oh, yes. More so than most evangelicals assume themselves to be Anglican. Thank you. Brian? If you answer yes, this question uh, before I arrive, so perhaps you could talk to me afterwards. Mr. General, one of, um, what do you think his particular message is to us today? Is there something in his personal message that is a message to us today? Perhaps there's the only one in the room with Hori Homiletica. Anybody else got it? Dave, you've got it. No. Um, I think the, the, the sort of um, insistence on good, clear preaching. I get very fed up with preachers who don't have any points in their sermons, for example. He didn't originate with the sort of three-point sermon thing, but he was very, very insistent on a clear structure to the sermon. I always like the reference which he has to 
um, Richard Baxter. When um, Richard Baxter talks about the preacher who has 65thly in his sermon, <laughs> you can't really sort of follow the other 64 points. No, you get the 60. But Simeon was very much concerned with having three, generally three clear points, and he often had two subheadings. So I think the legacy I regard as important is as him as a preacher and as somebody who was very much concerned about helping people preach sermons properly, biblically, and not imposing, as he said, his own system on the Bible, but let the Bible speak for itself. But I think so often people don't have access to Hori Homiletica, and therefore perhaps the Charles Simeon, as Charles Smythe book, might help them in terms of understanding the principles relating to sermon preparation. Patronage, I think, is something else, which is an important model, but I think the preaching is, is the most important. Yes. Uh, you've made the point very clearly that Simeon was very much a churchman. How did he relate and how would he relate to other forms of evangelicalism, such as Methodism and other revivalistic movements? There's a lovely reference in uh, Keres's life to... He talks about an old, an old clergyman going to visit... Um, he doesn't actually use the w- word wicked Arminianist... But he talks about him visiting somebody of a different persuasion. And, of course, it's Wesley, and it's actually him. So he goes and visits Wesley and talks to him. I think, as was common amongst evangelicals at that time, they did cooperate in certain things, like the work of the Bible Society. Now, I didn't talk much about some of the other controversy with which he was involved, but in about 1810, 1812, he was, with others, responsible for setting up a Bible Society auxiliary in Cambridge, and there was a great furore about that, as to whether Anglicans should actually cooperate and work with nonconformists. But in certain things like that, he was certainly very active in the Bible Society. With um, CMS, of course, early on, they had, I think some of the other men in it were Lutherans, for example. So he was working with others, but not in the way that one would think about it today. If there were areas of cooperation, he would obviously be much with them. But he, he doesn't spell it out a lot. But I think it's through his involvement with them. That was the main thing. Of course, you've got to think about the, the people at Cambridge at that time. Um, students were expected to be Anglican anyway and conform. And therefore, his contact within the university context would only be with fellow Anglicans. So he, would, he lived within a, in a very sort of limited sphere. But yet he did meet others and was obviously happy with them. He wouldn't invite nonconformists to preach in his church, for example, because that wasn't the the sort of style at that particular time. But the Bible Society would be the main thing. John? Could I ask a question that follows on from that last one, but uh, perhaps a little more precisely? I was going to ask whether Simeon expressed any views upon or practiced the, uh, the subject of revival. I once was in a church in Moulin in Perthshire where they talk about a thing called Moulin Revival, uh, which followed a visit by Simeon. Uh, he'd gone on, I think, before it happened. But was he involved in what we should regard as revivalism at all? You're referring to his three visits to Scotland. Um, when he went up there, um, yes, you asked about other churches. Of course, when he was in Scotland, he worshipped with the Presbyterians and was happy to do that because that is the established church north of the border. When he, um, he went on these three preaching tours in Scotland, he preached to vast numbers of people. Um, you had a um, thing on Wednesday last week. Um, if you think about Whitfield, he preached to thousands of people. And Simeon, similarly, not as many as Whitfield, but yes, he was involved with that. Nothing is said in the books about it. Um, clearly, he was present 
in the, and I'm not sure my um, geography in Scotland as to where he was, but he certainly went up three times and was much involved in preaching to vast numbers of people. I can't remember offhand, 20,000, 30,000 people were mentioned. And even if those are exaggerations, it was a quite a lot of people. But I, I don't think he actually mentions it specifically. Yes. I'm interested in the link with Francis Close, whom you mentioned earlier. Would you care to repeat the link of Simeon and Francis Close? It take about uh, six hours on that. <laughs> Simply that uh, Sim, um, Close was um, somebody who went to Cambridge as an undergraduate and had already become converted through um, Milner in Hull and he had a letter of introduction uh, to Simeon because that was the usual way of getting to know the man and um, through that um, he attended the sermon classes and had a very close contact with him for the rest of his life. Um, he was then subsequently appointed to Cheltenham, mm -hmm. and that was the first appointment that Simeon made. That was Cheltenham Parish Church. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ask me afterwards, because I can tell you more about this. David? Uh, just a, a kind of um, transposition. I mean, if Simeon were alive today, and making the adjustments of the time, kind of thing, what do you think he would make of the Church of England? <laughs> Do you want to answer the question as well? <laughs> I suppose I would, I would think that because he was a churchman, he was committed to the formularies, and therefore he would take them seriously. Um, I think I've followed your pattern. Do you still preach on the articles every year? That's something I do. I was preaching on predestination about two weeks ago. Um, I think it's important that we do look to the formularies, so that would give the doctrinal clarity and structure to what one believes. Um, times have changed, and of course there are some of the articles which are slightly um, less appropriate today. Some of the controversial ones about Rome and Anabaptists, one, one would question in the way that they're expressed in the articles, I think, because you know, times have changed. But it does give a standard as with the Book of Common Prayer, it does give a doctrinal standard, and therefore I think he would be one who would be concerned about maintaining the standard which is expressed. Not, I don't think, in the letter, because I think um, times have changed, and language has changed, and a whole range of things. So I don't think he'd be... He, he might be a member of the Prayer Book Society, but I, I, I think he might be a sort of just take their papers and not be a formal member, something like <laughs> that. Um, but I think he would use modern liturgy, um, because he was concerned about... The marrow and fatness, I think. Now, you might argue that some of the modern liturgies don't contain the marrow and fatness that the Book of Common Prayer purports to have. But I think it does give some sort of structure and order to worship, um, which can be adapted and used, as well as the preaching. But as to... It's always difficult when you sort of ask a question like that, because it's an impossible question, of course, to answer, because he, he, is, he is a Regency dandy, and he lived in a very narrow academic world in Cambridge. Um, I, I think it would be something like with the articles, I would think. Um, what, how would you answer the question? <laughs> I suppose concerned with mission. He was concerned with mission as well. So he, 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 the, the things that evangelicals do believe in, I think, he would be with them. I don't think he'd actually be the leader who would actually sort of stand on the platform and uh, harangue people, I don't think.
because it was a, something in the background. Yes, Jimmy. This is the googly. Do you think Bishop can Archbishop are necessary in the church? Or can it not function just as well with us? There we are. I said it was googly. <laughs> Did you hear the question? Do you think bishops and archbishops are necessary? That was the question, Jimmy? Well, he would say they were because he was a member of the Anglican Church. Um, he would say they would be um, useful, but it's as, it's as I gave the quote. He had far more influence in not being a bishop. Yes, you are. Well, I'm trying to sort of answer in a general way and think of what I'm saying. Um, no, they're, they're useful. They're not essential. I think that's what the reformers taught. Um, churches can, it's a, it's a matter of, uh, if you think about primary matters of doctrine and secondary matters of doctrine, that is a matter of church order. Well, church order is secondary, but the primary matters are those of faith, that is not.